0: One does not necessarily allow the state to define what is legal. Now, the state has the power to enforce a certain concept of what is legal, but power doesn't imply justice or correctness even. So the state may define something as civil disobedience and may be wrong in doing so.
1: Throughout American history, the political leaders have always exhorted the American people to be nice and quiet and leave things to them. But when very serious evils confronted the American people, they had to go beyond the congressmen and the senators, and they had to commit civil disobedience, and they had even to break the law.
0: 30 seconds and counting. This is News Coup, a Public Herald production where we set the record straight on what's in the news. I'm your host, Joshua Perbanek, And today on the show, we're going to be talking with investigative journalist Justin Noble, who's recently joined the Public Herald team to take on one of the hottest topics to come out of the fossil fuel story. It's about a secret so dangerous it could end this industry. The idea of safe fracking transformed oil and gas in America for the 21st century, and it helped create a worldwide resurgence for an otherwise dying industry. But as we hear in this episode of News Coup, a dangerous secret protected by regulators threatens the identity of fracking. That secret takes us down a rabbit hole from the beginning of time to the present-day legacy of untold radioactive risks in communities wherever black shale is fracked. And just keep in mind, today we're going to be talking about one of Justin's stories that published in Rolling Stone called America's Radioactive Secret. In that story, Justin goes deep into how radioactivity has been shrouded by the industry since the beginning of fracking and the beginning of oil and gas. And these workers are essentially facing really, really dangerous circumstances We're also going to be discussing the Public Herald reporting on this subject that dates back to since we began back in 2011, uh, and our documentary Triple Divide, which exposed some issues with radioactivity, and our most recent reporting uh, that discussed how radioactivity is getting into the waterways in the United States uh, from fracking waste itself. Be sure to look to the shelves at your local bookstores for the latest Rolling Stone issue, which will have Justin's story inside of it. And stay tuned to Public Herald, where Justin and I are going to be writing about the issue of radioactivity for the next year. We are a publicly funded program. Uh, if you wish to contribute to the work that we're doing, you can do so at publicherald.org donate. And you can become a Public Herald member, receive a copy of one of our documentary films, Triple Divide, Triple Divide Redacted, or Invisible Hand. And as always, don't forget to subscribe to all of our shows here at News on any of your favorite podcast channels. With that, let's dive into the show. Welcome to the News world.
1: It is awesome to be here, Joshua. Thank you very much.
0: So tell us about what it is that you're saying and what it is that you're finding um, about radiation and oil and gas.
1: Yeah, so I'm gonna. I I feel that to understand the gravity of this topic, to understand how big it is, um, you really have to start at the beginning, and I actually mean the real beginning, the beginning of time which is, um, the universe is what, 9 billion years old? I think about... I think we can go with that. Yeah, 9 billion years old. Earth is like 4.7 or something. Um, So early on, um, you had quite a lot of radioactive elements. In the early time of Earth there was hundreds of radioactive elements. And it's been 4.5, 5 billion years since those times. So a lot of them have decayed out into stable elements. Um, you know, So just zoom back to the beginning, a lot of radioactivity on the earth. Fast forward to our present time, not that much, but still a fair bit. So what's left? What's left are the radioactive elements which have very, very long half-lives. All the ones with short half-lives, decayed out which just means that they shot a bunch of radiation out and then became something a little bit more stable shot a bunch of radiation out and became something a little bit more stable and eventually became a stable element which means they're not going anywhere for the rest of time which is an extraordinary thought (laughs) but um the ones with long half-lives they are still around because they haven't had enough time even though the earth's been around for billions of years, they haven't had enough time to completely decay out to something stable. And so there's two prominent elements um, that come up in oil and gas that started at the beginning of time as radioactive. They haven't had enough time to decay out to something stable. That's uranium-238 and thorium-232.
0: So we started in a world just built
1: on some kind of radioactive template. So... You have this idea that you have elements left over that are still there. These little gifts from the beginning of time. How do they get to oil and gas? Well, the mother load of all oil and gas is what's called the black shale. A black shale forms in a shallow marine environment where you have organic rich material being deposited. So imagine the Gulf of Mexico right now. That's a perfect example. Somewhere off the mouth of the Mississippi and in various parts of the Gulf, you'll be forming black shales that if you go through the processes of time, they get sediment, you know, covered with other sediments, um, pressurized as they're covered enough where they're going to be at pressure, they're going to be cooked as they go further down. And eventually, you know, what's settling out right now in the Gulf of Mexico will become Uh, an oil or gas layer that some future civilization could crack up. But also, in that organic rich material, the black shale, black being organic, um, you're going to be accumulating uranium-238 and thorium-232. So, this is something, this was kind of the first rabbit hole. The first part of the rabbit hole is to recognize, you know, you hear radioactivity come up in fracking, Fracking waste is radioactive, the brine is radioactive, the cuttings, and, um, and it can all be true, but it doesn't connect the picture. You've got to go back and think, well, where did, where did it come from? Black shales are inherently radioactive. Uranium loves to cling to organic material, so when you're, when you're settling out stuff at the bottom of the ocean, you have already uranium clinging to the dead marine algae that in the future will be cooked into oil and gas. So it is baked in from the beginning. Geologists don't like when I use that analogy because baked has a a certain connotation, but I mean, just, I think I just- It makes sense. Yeah, I described it to you the other day, like you have the batter with the chocolate chips and that's your radioactivity. And like when you put it in the oven to make the oil and gas, to make the cookie, it's there. So there's no like, oh, well, it's not there and trying to get around, no, 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 no. And, and that was what's amazing. You go back to these early USGS papers from the 1960s. Um, there's an incredible one called, Uran- it looks at the content of uranium and oil in yeah. marine black shales. A 1960 USGS paper done for the Atomic Energy Commission. So why is the Atomic Energy Commission interested? they weren't even really looking so much at the oil. They were looking at black shales as a repository for uranium. They thought that there's so much uranium in these black shales, can we mine them successfully for uranium? And the oil is kind of this interesting afterthought. And of course, right now we're fracking black shales for oil and kind of pretending that uranium doesn't exist. But if you go back 60 years, the scientists were Thinking, they were all excited because this is the atomic era, and they're thinking, "Well, wow, there could be a lot of uranium there," and they actually come up with figures. Um, there's a great quote I have in the presentation I just gave. Um, you know, they reckon there's like billions of tons of uranium <laughs> in the black shales. I mean, it's an astonishing figure yeah. of how much uranium is down there, and, and the Earth has, has protected us. Mammals right in a way, right? Right. Because this this black
0: shale that contains all this radioactive material, which inherently is going to be harmful for us, because we just can't withstand it, has been buried ten thousand feet down in the Marcellus shale, you know, in the Utica shale. So we're not being exposed to it prior to fracking. Essentially, in this way, we see some of it with what with you know the Manhattan Project or with other uranium mine projects that are going on, but nothing on the scale of what we're looking at with unconventional
1: drilling. Is that right? Yeah, essentially that's right. And there's there's a recent source I've been led to who laid it out in a very powerful way. Uh, What we're doing is taking a radioactive repository and bringing it into the biosphere. We are we are creating like a subway system with oil and gas wells for transferring radioactivity into the biosphere. So exactly like you said from a zone where it wasn't affecting us to the zone where we happen to live as human beings. Um that's yeah. it. That's that's that. oil and gas. <laughs> yeah and it is i mean that is oil and gas we have lived in a world where oil how, and gas how,
0: how did uh, all of our scientists and all of our researchers uh, how, how did we not have this discussion until 2019
1: yeah that's a question I mean, for sociologists other people to answer and we really should ask that i mean how we should did we bypass so that this is this it long? this is so here's another rabbit hole yeah. when was the you know so what i do is I will read a paper starting with you know USGS ones written in 2011. There's a really great 2011 USGS paper that talks about radioactivity in black shales in eastern shales such as the Marsalis. Okay, well, what is that citing? That goes back to the 60s. What is that citing? Eventually, you're led back to 1904, and the buck stops in 1904. That is the first paper that me and anyone other researcher, because I haven't seen anything earlier. Um, first paper on oil and gas radioactivity. It's a very simple study in Petrolia, Ontario, which is a a petroleum named after petroleum, which I believe is a Greek or Roman word. Um, So this is like an early oil and gas producing province in Southern Ontario. Scientist goes into a farmer's field, um, you know, says, hey, Farmer Joe, can I check out your oil wheel that I got, uh, your oil? Wheel? I got this interesting study to do. Crude oil is coming up, he traps it, runs it through some Erlemeyer flask, and he sees there's a gas that's emanating out of the oil and um, using some sort of photographic plate is able to determine that it's a radioactive gas. So this first study in 1904 is called uh, a radioactive gas found in crude oil petroleum. 1904, so they figured it out. Now we, and radon hadn't even been named yet. I think a couple years later, radon was invented and given the name radon. The gas this science scientist had found was radon. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's it, 1904. So right, you think it's, like in 1904, there could have been like, wait, let's hold the forum. Let's <laughs> talk about this, uh, you know, this stuff. You know, I mean, now we know radon to be the second leading cause of lung cancer deaths in the United States. It's, enor- it's an enormously successfully lethal uh, killer of, of. Yeah, humans yeah yeah and we yeah. can get to that in a bit like why is radon so dangerous but yeah i mean so you're right this discussion could have happened at many points across history um i don't know why it didn't happen in 1904 i mean if i was that scientist i would be waving that data you know as as loud as high as i could <laughs> throwing
0: a radium into the air
1: yeah throwing, <laughs> throwing,
0: we don't know how this happened but we do know now finally after uh, quite a bit of research, quite a bit of reporting, uh, and and a, a lot of our own work. That this shale formation, this Marcellus shale, and these shales that are being fracked, they are all hot, and they're not just like the industry might describe in a public meeting. That hey, it's okay, it's brine, but it's just a a thimbleful of radiation in a giant pool, you know, the size of a lake. You know, it this this radiation that's coming out of this Marcella shale is tremendously high. You know, in the in the reports that we put out at Public Herald we've cited examples where the brine's being tested in order to go to a waste treatment plant, and that brine's coming out with radium at like five thousand picocuries per liter. And of course there's been tests that come out with brine with radium at twenty thousand picocuries per liter. Right. And here is a substance that we consider to be unsafe at five picocuries per liter. So we're dealing with something that's five times 5000 times larger, in some cases 1000 times larger than some cases, whatever higher than we consider safe for humans, which is pretty dramatic.
1: Absolutely. And we don't
0: even have those trucks
1: marked. Mm -hmm. And we don't have a discussion. Absolutely. So, yeah, no, you bring up, there's like three key things to riff off that. One is, yeah, let's talk about the numbers. So, right, even our own EPA is so frightened by the element radium, we'll focus on one of the particular decay products of uranium 238, one of the particular radioactive elements common in oil and gas, it's radium 226 or 228. So, focus on radium. The EPA. Uh, thinks radium is so dangerous that the limit in drinking water they've set is five. Five picocuries per liter. So we'll just focus on the number five. No more than five. It's bad stuff. You don't want more than five. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission, that's scary. Think, you know, the nuclear industry. They're they're serious people at the nuclear industry. They take the regulation pretty seriously. Um, When they look at industrial effluent, that's industrial discharge, their limit is 120. So five for water. 120 for like a factory, for some sort of industry. And yes, brine in the Marcellus has been found to be as high as 28,500. So 528,500. One of the strongest uh, sources, one of the strongest like quotes, ways that I've been told to try and digest that is in the nuclear industry, if you had a cup of brine, taken from a Marcellus brine hauler, we see these trucks, like you said, unlabeled every day, take that cup, transfer it into a nuclear facility um, where they have a lot of regulation, a lot of safety, workers are appropriately dressed and whatnot, and now you've got a cup of 28,500 carry radium brine, and they spill it, um, they would have to, you know, it'd be like warning lights in the China Syndrome, the movie. I mean, they, they would shut the place down. If that worker accidentally took that home with them, they could go to jail. We are now allowing truckers who have no knowledge, no protection in a truck with no labeling, driving around the country, driving around Pennsylvania on small railroads, spilling everywhere, and we're spreading it intentionally on roads, which is just catastrophic. And then to go another
0: layer on top of that, we have a regulatory agency in, in all states that, I've done studies in some cases on this and have somehow found levels that are much lower than what you and I have seen in these test results. You know, the the DEP's own um, study ended up coming out and DEP was touting it as a study where if they weren't finding any serious risks to the public health and if they did, they would shut everything down tomorrow. It wouldn't be a problem. So even though they're sitting there with data like you're describing they're telling the public that that there's no risk there for the radiation and there's nothing to be worried about however we have these brine trucks that you're that you're describing going to landfills like we reported in August
1: mm-hmm. dumping
0: all that radiation into the landfill and then we have the rain falling down pulling the radiation out making it soluble putting it into the leachate leachate going to the sewage facility the sewage facility unable to treat it, which inevitably allows it to be dumped back in the rivers. And we have a regulatory agency that basically says that this somehow isn't a
1: risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you bring How up. How
0: is that even a reality? I mean, in in the right. in the work that you've done, which is going to be leagues beyond what our regulatory agencies have done. The health discoveries that you're finding in this, I mean. It's, try and rationalize what the regulatory yeah. agency is saying versus what it is that you're reading.
1: Yeah, no, it's... I just... They haven't read everything. They're looking at, you know, imagine this as, um, you know, one of the pyramids in Egypt, a, a, and it's a massive structure. It is giant, and they're looking at like six bricks.
0: So we're, we're, it's similar to other cases that we reported about DEP, which these these the personnel at the regulatory agencies and the EPA also are presenting themselves as the foremost scientists at the forefront of these issues or they are the experts on these topics but what we're finding out is that like they're barely D students in biology 101 or you know any type of science class it's,
1: no it's a great point and you all at public health have really been top notch at 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 trumpeting this you, like in some of these studies there actually is very interesting data where if you understand the science if you've read a lot you'll be like oh wow that's that's high and and that's scary but then the conclusion of the paper will be something very you know milk toast. well we're not that worried and we've got it under control we don't think there's um, an impact here exactly so there even within their reports where the conclusions are, it's all fine. There's information where you've got, if you've got your lights, you know, your, your antennas up, you're, you're, you get quite, you know, worried. And you can, I mean, I use that in a lot of my reporting. Um, but why you're looking at like a, an interesting aspect of a regulatory agency. I don't know why, I don't know when, you know, they drop their guard down and, and, and drop, Their courage or their or their sense of duty, and just think that they have to say it's all okay. It's a weird sense that, you know, why, yeah, why aren't you ringing an alarm bell? Why is it that like a bunch of scrappy journalists are running around educating themselves on this, getting together? Really, I mean, at this point, we have an all-star team of radiation experts um, that has been cherry-picked from the nuclear industry. From the nuclear proliferation, um, you know, team people who went around in the 80s and 90s to um, you know post-Soviet countries um, and uh, or still during the Soviet era, and were looking at nuclear waste. I mean, the people I have now, and This is what the regulatory agencies just don't understand. So one of the people I have now, he would go around to sites that were potentially, you know, making. A, you know, bomb-grade material or reprocessing nuclear material that was illegal under nuclear proliferation treaties. And he says, I don't even have to go into these facilities. I can go to the outside and test the doormat, and I will know exactly what's happening inside that facility just based on the radionuclides I find on the doormat. So when you transfer that expertise, To the Marcellus, I mean, this guy could track a worker through a diner and then back to his car and then to his home and then, you know, looks in the pile where he dropped his clothes on the floor. We can do that. We have the science to do that. Radioactivity, as complicated as, as complex as it is, it leaves a million clues. It's actually, that's the nature of it. It's breaking apart constantly and leaving clues of itself. And once you get a scientist who understands that, um, they can crack into it. And that has happened. So just, you know, this is really important to mention. Okay, well, 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 you don't have any proof that people are getting hurt. Oh, no, no, we do, actually. And I showed you the book the other day. Case in the 1980s in the Mississippi oil fields where workers who were cleaning out a type of radioactive scale, just essentially think of your kitchen, pipe builds up gunk or piping, you know, going through your house, builds up gunk at certain points where pressure and temperature change. oil field piping is the same way. And the gunk that oil field piping builds up happens to be radioactive. Um, and if it's a pipe going from the formation up to the ground, it's radium often that's building up as this scale. So these workers have to chisel that out. That piping can get so gunked up, it can block off the flow of oil, so you've got to, at some point, you know, unclog it, which means taking it out of the ground, sending it to a machine shop. And these guys in Mississippi were really talented machinists. They were successfully cleaning a very hard precipitated material that's tough to get out with these um, kind of self-invented, complicated, you know, automatic chiseling tools. This type of work, by the way, it, it's referred to as rattling yard work, or it's called the rattling yard because it's so tough it shakes the equipment. They are creating all this dust, breathing it in, having no idea that they're breathing in dust that's laced with radium. And they were getting sick. And they had doctors at the time in Mississippi who looked at them and said, oh, this is weird. You have radium, um, you know, radium uh, contamination. Built up inside of this equipment. Yeah. Well, yeah, they found it in their bodies, and then they traced it back. And so there is a lawyer named Stuart Smith. He wrote a book called "Crude Justice," which came out about six years ago. And he put this story together and he sued the big uh, two of the big majors um, successfully. And these and the and but that's it.
0: So the decision in that case was yes, these workers were contaminated with radium from the oil and gas industry, and they have been sickened by it.
1: Yeah, and it's such a strong pathway that. Um, one of they were doing this work in the backyard. You know, it was a real backyard operation. And one of the workers' wives had a vegetable garden adjacent to where they were cleaning the pipes. The garden vegetables got coated with radium which is so profound. Dust. Yeah. Yeah. She ate the vegetables. She was six months pregnant one day, sat on the side of the bathtub and her hip cracked in half. And it was. It was. Her bones were weakened because they were filled with radium. Radium is what's called a bone seeker. It goes to your bones. Your body thinks it's calcium. It has a similar chemical makeup as calcium. So your body will, if you swallow radium, if you breathe in radium, um, through dust. Yeah, radium sticks to dust. It can stick to clay. It can. And dust is the worst exposure. So outside of the immediate most serious
0: risk to all this, which is definitely going to be the worker on site. Uh, who's being exposed to it through the machinery, uh, through the cleanup, through the day-to-day process at an unconventional well and even at the conventional wells. Um, One of the first uh, real dangers to the public is just the dust from these oil and gas operations, either through the well pad itself and what it's spewing into the air which is a potential for this dust to be carried and moved mm-hmm. around or what we've seen with somebody like um, Siri Lawson who mm-hmm. helped blow the case up of is conventional spraying of or, or is the spraying of dirt roads with salt and brine fluid a safe way to deal with dust control right which is mm-hmm. this most like ironic, ridiculous situation where they're attempting to control dust with salt water by spraying it on the rural roads in Pennsylvania next to Siri Lawson's house, yeah. using a brine that they're saying is not a problem. Siri saying, this is unsafe, I'm sick, there's all these problems. We're saying, yeah, there's radiation in it, and it doesn't even help to, in the end of the day, mm-hmm. stop the dust from happening. It just ends up creating more dust because it dries quickly. And then that dust is now radioactive. So mm-hmm. one of the first ways that I think a lot of people who have been exposed to this is just simply through dust control and spreading these fluids on the roads and rural yeah. PA.
1: So, right. So, no, so many important points there. I mean, it just before I get into it, try and imagine a bunch of of chainsaws running like somehow combined together some inventor has like brought put like eight chainsaws together they're all pointing in different directions and and you're trying to wrap like a wet handkerchief around it and somehow contain it i mean that's that's this
0: that's the level (laughs) of risk that we're that we're dealing with and i think that's like it's like something that people are None of us can really just wrap our head around. It's a hard thing. It's very difficult to consider like the exposure to radiation. So maybe we should just walk through that a little bit, you know, like how it, how big is the risk? Right. And where does it start for the families and for the people in Pennsylvania because of something like fracking.
1: Yeah, so at the wellhead we don't really know what's happening because the industry has been very resistant to any sort of testing. So that 1904 study, very simple study done 115 years ago. I don't think that's been able to be reproduced. I would love to know, and many people would love to know how much radon is coming up at the wellhead. Um, That would help answer a lot of questions, you know, are when you flare, um, At a wellhead, and you're flaring, you know, methane, which happens a lot in certain places, in North Dakota, the Permian, and you know, you see it also in the Marcellus. Are are worrisome amounts of this second leading cause of lung cancer? Worrisome radioactive gas, radon, being released in these flares? I don't know. If we knew, if so, if, if, and it's again simple test done 115 years ago. If we knew how much radon was coming up, we could start to answer those questions. Um, and and then tell people who live in valleys where maybe they're surrounded by like six, seven, you know, fracking wells that they're on the hill. All this flaring's happening. Maybe there's a compressor station, too, which has an enormous amount of flaring often. Uh, radon is a heavy gas that settles down you know, what's happening there. We're, we're trying to put together these pieces and we will eventually, we will get there. Once we start to get the these experts in there, these questions will be answered. But because certain data routes are cut off, it's hard to say the exposure at the wellhead. But yeah, knowing the science, um, there's a lot of room for concern
0: but our experts right now i mean we, we don't even have them testing for the radon or for the radiation
1: no so yeah let so me we're, rock-
0: we're still not there
1: we, no right yeah. i mean we you and i are doing the job of of which makes it so interesting as a journalist like you figure out what's happening and suddenly you have to go beyond being a journalist i mean it's and i know you're doing this too we're we're calling the scientist and saying hey you got to check this out You know, I know you're busy, but you get this and I don't and you have the equipment and I don't. Let's go here. Um, And, you know, and then we're talking to the health researchers too. you know, um, an oncology nurse or different people in the environmental toxicology field. They don't know this. They're not out in the field as much as us and and trying to bring them into the picture. Um, But to follow to answer the other part of your question. okay, so radon is what's called an alpha emitter. So again, this idea of radiation is is a is a, a piece of material that's constantly breaking off pieces of itself, ejecting pieces of itself, and that is the radiation. And it shoots off a piece of itself, and then it actually becomes another element, which is an extraordinary process. Um, so what can it shoot off? What can shoot off gamma rays, or it can shoot off a beta particle, or it can shoot off an alpha particle. Yeah. And an alpha particle is, is what ends up being, uh, really worrisome for a human being. Our skin, a piece of paper can stop an alpha particle, but our gut, the soft lining of our gut, our lung tissue cannot. So if you swallow something like radon, which is an alpha emitter, it's gonna do this blast out inside your body. And that blast out is energy essentially. And so there's a good analogy I've been running with on, okay, what does it mean? You swallow radon, it shoots an alpha. Well, what is an alpha? An alpha is just an extraordinary little particle. It can it travels at a tenth of the speed of light, and it has so much energy that imagine a drunk driver on a city street. It's lined with cars, and they're going way too fast. And um, I would see this all the time in New Orleans. And they smash into one car, and then they ricochet maybe into a second car. And if they're really going fast, like maybe they'll hit a third and a fourth car. Like and and then their energy's done. I mean, they're going 60, but then they hit a bunch of cars, they're done.
0: Maybe somebody got hurt, maybe they didn't.
1: Right, but focus on the car. Four cars were hit, and alpha will do that 10,000 times. That's how much energy it has, 10,000 ricochets. And, and it's happening inside your cell. So 10,000 ricochets, your cell's obliterated. Yeah. It is, it's absolutely macerated, and that's just one alpha particle. And we do know, many experts I've talked to have, have confirmed this, um, One alpha particle can cause a lethal tumor. But that's, it's a, yeah, it's incredible. It's astonishing. But that tumor will not happen sometimes for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, which is part of the reason why it's hard to say, you know, look, this happened yesterday. It's not like that. It's more like, look, this happened, but it it could have been 20 years ago. We're in the early part of that 20 years right now with fracking at least.
0: And the alpha particles that, I mean, we're looking at, you know, if we're inside of that, space where, you know, there's five thousand picocuries per liter or twenty thousand picocuries per liter, you know, in that tank, how how much are we considering then with alpha particles? You know, in
1: numbers and how much is being going out there? It's it's so much. It's, you know, it's an on right. So, and, and the industry will say, well, there's ongoing radiation everywhere. everywhere. True, yeah. but we've not, it's it's worrisome. Even that we live on a planet that radioactive, you know, we, some of us will die from that. But we've now introduced much, much more. And by the way, radon doesn't stop there. So radon will go through five decays in about the space of an hour. And radon. this part is fascinating because
0: this, this is the part that none of us really have been clear on, mm-hmm. which is, radon is always like this endpoint. like oh no radon's coming like stop radon but beyond radon there is a whole other series of these daughter products that get created
1: right there's exactly it's not
0: the end of the chemical reaction
1: no not at all radon is right about in the middle of the uranium-238 decay chain so radon has a half-life of a about 3.8 days. And again, a half-life is the time it takes for about half of it to decay onto the next thing. So at 3.8 days, about half of radon will have decayed, which means send out this enormous blast of, of energy, 10,000, you know, smashed up cars. And if it's in your cell pieces of your cell. Um, so after radon starts, it's decay, it goes, boom, it blasts out the alpha. It's polonium 218 and then boom, blasts out another alpha. It's lead to 14, only lead 214 for about 27 minutes, blast out a beta, it's bismuth 214, blast out another beta, polonium 214 for a fraction of a second, blast out another alpha, and then it's lead 210. So that's five decays in an hour, three of them were alpha decays. That all happened in your lungs. So if one, alpha, if one alpha can cause a lethal tumor, you just had you know three opportunities to cause a lethal tumor. Sure, our body can repair that, it will find it, repair it, but um, you're starting to play with odds. It's not done yet though. Now you have lead 210, radioactive lead, sitting in your lungs, or maybe it's dislodged and sent into your bloodstream, um, and the decay will continue from there. But for 22 years, you're gonna have radioactive lead in your lungs.
0: So this is part of the thing that we stressed to the Attorney General's team when we spoke to them in 2017. We said, listen, the Department of Environmental Protection understands that there's radiation inside of this process. They understand that there's radiation in the brine. They understand that the radiation gets caked into the machinery, has to go to the landfills. But they also understand that if there's contamination or potential contamination to someone's water supply, that the existence of radiation would be one of the easiest ways to trace and connect that to fracking, because we would be Absolutely. able to we would be able to measure in simple numbers. Oh, the radium has increased. All of these right. products, all of these parts of that chain reaction that you just named, which there's you know almost a, what a dozen of those different parts that happen outside right. of uranium and thorium. All of these things the DEP can test for. And Absolutely. knowing that, knowing that it would help them trace a conclusion in mm-hmm. the end and knowing that it's one of the scariest health concerns in the entire fracking process that everybody should be worried about this. They are refusing to test for the radiation when they're going out and doing these investigations. And it's not that They've never done it. They've done it before. They've found the radiation inside of these people's drinking water supplies. But the conclusions that they're making are not being based on this radiation.
1: Yeah, and they're not even digesting the full part of the decay chain. So here's a test that's not that difficult that once you understand the decay chain, you could carry out with you know a couple... Um, uh, students or workers, officials, uh, you know, a group of able-bodied people, you just, anywhere where you're worried about radon being emitted, it, if you think about that to K-Chain, you realize, oh, wow, in an hour, you're not going to have radon anymore. You're going to have radioactive lead. Radioactive lead can be examined just like any a metallic isotope can be examined. So you go to an area, say it's a flare on a well pad, say it's a big, um, you know, tank that's filled with brine that you might have as a frac waste treatment plant. Um, you have radium, uh, radium goes to radon, radon goes up in the air, and an hour later, on average, you have radioactive lead, which will literally fall out on its own or sometimes fall out with precipitation. Uh, and, and there's many papers about how lead 210 falls out over the earth. It's interesting. So what you do is you just test around that spot. Um and you and I were talking about before the exact way, you know, there's patterns. Scientists know how to look for something. So you can test in a certain pattern and, um, and that's it. You, you, can, you can test around and see are the numbers of radioactive lead higher uh, downwind or in a certain pattern uh, connected to a wellhead. A compressor station, a frac waste cleaning plant, um, and this is the research I'm trying to bring out and trying to get researchers to do. It's not that difficult. It's interesting. It involves, you know, chucking everything onto an ArcGIS map or some sort of map. And I mean, with a citizen science team, you could you could canvass the whole Marcellus and do a very interesting study. I would love to see that. I, yeah, it's astounding. But right, and they absolutely the D P could do this. The D P could they, they,
0: do they, that. They've done some of this, right? I mean, they've done the radiation study, so they know as an agency. You know, they have an understanding that the process is radioactive. What they're trying to convey to the public is that it's not a worry to you because it's not that radiation is not getting into your life. You know, you're not getting exposed to it. I mean, that's the kind of false security they're handing off to different people in the public right now. And for us, we're, we're, we're looking at it and saying, how is it ever possible that you came up with this conclusion? Because we just sent you an email to your team at the DEP office because we know a truck just spilled over mm-hmm. in Elizabeth Township. Right, and we asked you, did you test the brine Mm -hmm. from that spill for radiation? And you're telling us that you're going out and you're doing these inspections and you're looking at these spills and you're not testing any
1: of them for radiation at all. It's right. So great, we have people in the fluid. Right. No, great for you to bring it right there, Um, and and you are so good at doing that at Public Herald. So. Right, brine truck spills. Yeah, we know there's arsenic. We know there's other things in the brine. But yeah, there's radium. Why did you not test for radium? Brine trucks are spilling regularly because the drivers are often going on these hilly, icy Appalachia roads and they don't know the area. They they crash all the time. Um, There's spills everywhere. I I don't even know if DP is marking where all the spills occur. But yeah, everywhere you have a brine truck spill, you have a small radioactive spill.
0: And this is one thing that we tried to really like... help the attorney general understand that the DEP is creating a genre of what they consider primary chemicals of concern. Mm. And they're not only not testing for radiation in that genre, but they're excluding it as if it doesn't exist. And you and I, we look at a a pollution event Mm -hmm. and the the primary chemical of concern, the one at the very top, we're, we're looking for radiation at the very top and we're asking how much was there. What got spilled? Mm-hmm. What's potentially in the person's water? Oh, why didn't the state test for any of that stuff? So we then have to find a scientist to go out and do all the testing for us. And that's the position that we've been put in right now. And it's a position that I think proves some intent at the Department of Environmental Protection's office. You know, There is an intent there not to test for the radiation. So the question is really you know, getting down to why. And the one person that we've seen try to dismiss the real safety issues surrounding the radiation and surrounding oil and gas in general has been Scott Perry. You know, somebody who shows up at events, gives speeches, Mm -hmm. answers people's questions and concerns about this, says to them, you know, oh, Public Herald's publishing, you know, news that can't be trusted. Meanwhile, our news is just taking their documents and re- inserting them into the public eye in a way that's helpful for people to understand. Uh, Or he's telling people, you know, um, listen, we can't answer those questions because somebody's trying to to put us in jail, you know, under false pretenses, uh, you know, with with respect to the attorney general's office. Uh, So we have people at the DEP who, I mean, they
1: understand this. I, th- I think some of them do, and some of them, again, it is complicated. I've been reading it and interviewing the best people I can find on it for 18 months now. I don't think, um, you know, Scott, someone like Scott Perry has done that. Maybe, And I don't know, I haven't talked to, I've talked to Scott Perry a little bit on the radioactivity issue, but not much. But I doubt he's read the literally hundreds of papers that I've read. I don't think most regulators have. So I think some of them are just the the mind wants to not see the ship and um and not think or or maybe like a ufo would be a better example like you know a strange thing in the sky in your eyes just like it, it can't be the thing i think it is And they walk away from it but yes some of them know and and the aim over the next year i i I plan to and i do think i'll be successful in getting more whistleblowers at both the dp and the epa because i have some leads on people at both these agencies that know and that are scared and that they know there's a major problem occurring um but they're they're not talking right now i do think they will eventually
0: and i think that takes us to you know one of the one of the worst case scenarios for the situation and and for us, I believe that's environmental health and, and human health where the neglect of something as important as radioactivity ends up being so much that we end up with a catastrophic uh, problem inside of the ecosystem, right? And Where there's, a, there's an issue with the radiation in the ecosystem like uh, something similar to what we heard from Guy Krupa in the sewage plant story where all of the bugs are dying, all the bacteria is dying inside of the plant and they're trying to find out why. And all of a sudden they're finding radiation and the leachate and that kind of thing. And the other really, really scary, scary story, which is the potential cancer cluster mm-hmm. in an area. And that's, mm-hmm. that's like the dark doomsday situation where we don't want ever be in that position where we were writing about a situation where the neglect has been so high that there's been a potential group of people who've been exposed to high amounts of that radiation. And they then could be suffering serious health effects, deaths in relation to being exposed to it. And that is really scary because now we have this cancer cluster happening in Southwest PA and no Mm -hmm. one knows why. That mm-hmm. we know that there's a potential risk for radiation down there
1: yeah so many ways to go with that i mean again the science is there um and each of us radioactivity complicated believes a trail so if you do ingest radium for example it's a bone seeker it goes to the bones radium 226 has a half-life of 1600 years so if radium is building up in your bones it's not going anywhere um, and you, the human become a little test kit, you know, it's there in your bones. Um, and if you could get at the bones, you could know exactly what's hap- uh, what's in the bones at least. And, and because radium goes to the bone, it provides an incredible opportunity to understand how that particular radioactive element moves through the human body. And there's this astonishing case. Many people know about it. The case of the radium girls in the 19 teens and 1920s Um, radioactivity, early days of radioactivity, people are very excited about it. Oh, if we make this radium laced paint, um, it excites other metals in the paint and causes them to glow and you paint it on a watch and the, the, different parts of the watch or the clock can glow. So how great. So you have these women in these factories using the radium lace paint. It's a cool job for them. A lot of them are artists. It's the 20s, hip people. They got the radium job and um, they stick the little brush in the radium paint, put it on the watch, and then they stick it into their mouth to keep the tip firm. And these women ingested not even like gigantic amounts of radium, but regularly over time, a little bit of this radium lace paint every day. So they're ingesting radium, about 20% sticks in the bones. The body is able to excrete the other 80, but that's still a good bit, 20% of their bones, and they start dying. A Couple years later, some of them, um, but within the time span of like five to 10, many, and some of them died uh, decades later, but still the it was traced to radium. So how do we know? Well, there's a medical examiner in Newark, New Jersey, where one of these factories was located. Uh, and he was a great scientist. He did autopsies on 18 of these women. He wrote a brilliant paper in the American Journal of Cancer, published in 1931, and he, if you read this paper, which I recommend anyone who wants to research this issue should, um, he has a diagram of each woman. He has a skeleton, 18 skeletons in the paper, and he traces exactly where sarcomas developed, Uh, sarcomas are these cancers that form in specific bones um, in the radium girls and Martlin even talks about why he thinks the bones that develop sarcomas got them one of the one of the exposure pathways he saw commonly was the jaw and and a condition developed called necrosis of the jaw uh, what's now referred to as radium jaw where the teeth in the lower jaw rots away and on the cause of death for many of the radium girls this is actually listed in the curses of the jaw now there are brine haulers i'm in touch with in pennsylvania who have had their teeth and lower jaw removed Um, we can't make this step yet to it being radium because no one has done the testing to uh Determine that to make that conclusion, but it is there to be done. So just while we're on that, I know it's complicated, but imagine the radium girls. These uh, a poor woman dies of this exposure that she was not protected against. Um, so she's dead. She's a skeleton. Uh, radium killed her. It's still in her bones. And Harrison Martin lays out in this paper that in the year 3491, she is still so radioactive that her skeleton would be emitting thousands of alpha particles every second. 3491, deep in the future, she's still just streaming radioactivity out of her body. So if the industry or anyone wants to try and pretend that we're not going to solve this problem, we're going to solve it. I mean, what are you going to do like cremate all of us while we're still alive. I mean, we're the test kits, it's there. And so if you go to the CDC page on radium right now, (laughs) until they take it down, (laughs) there are tests for radium, okay? Think of how complicated the test is, like you break your ankle or something and you go in and suddenly you're being thrown in a CAT scan, like this million dollar machine. No, 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 radium, pretty simple. It's a urine test and it's an exhalation test. And the exhalation test is scary. It's because again, radium is a bone seeker. And the next decay after radium is radon, which we've been talking about. It's a gas. So if you have radium in your bones, you will be venting radon out of your body. And some of it comes out of your mouth. And you breathe it out. And that could be tested. They can measure the amount of radon coming out of your mouth and make a calculation to determine the amount of radium in your bones. So the Brian Hallers I know who are sick have tried to get, they know this, they've tried to get doctors to do this test. Again, not a hard test relative to other tests that are done regularly in the medical field. No one, none has done. I have not been able to find one doctor in the United States of America who even knows about this test, even though it's listed on a government web page. It, it's astonishing.
0: And, and for a place like Pennsylvania, where you know the pathway of exposure could exist, we, you know, we talk about that pathway in Triple Divide back in 2013, where we, we show how the industry was burying... Um, those waste pits of those drill cuttings, which would be highly radioactive and containing all that in these mini little Mm -hmm. landfills on people's yard, right? Where they dig it out and put a liner and then they just close it up like a tea bag and bury it. And here we are in the film looking at one of those situations where they illegally bury it and all of a sudden radons showing up in a person's water supply at really high amounts, like really high amounts. Mm -hmm. They're just shocking and uh yeah no that yeah, and-, and it's just like it's it's a clear picture of this kind of thing had been happening very early on and the potential pathway of exposure was clear and real and dangerous um, and we still haven't been able to have a discussion about it until maybe 2020 right I mean that's what we're shooting for we're going to be going after this at public herald for the next year and You know, going far beyond what we did uh, with the sewage leachate story and the radioactivity at those landfills, and and really uncovering some things that are truly important that are going to go further into that detailed description that you see in Triple Divide, where Mm -hmm. someone could be exposed through their shower or through their water for radon. And for people who are, you know, listening and probably just, scared about the uncertainty of it and and not really knowing like where to go beyond a couple of the, we we cited some books and some research papers for people to look at and some films that they can see. But the one thing that really helped me wrap my head around the dangerousness of the low level radioactivity was that documentary um, Atomic Homefront that came out on HBO in Mm -hmm. 2017, where you had a family in St. Louis, Missouri, who, these people are living next to the development of, you know, the atomic bomb where they're mining uranium, processing it, uh, using it in this town. And then they created a landfill landfill in this, this metropolitan area.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And next to it is these people. Uh, the landfill is so radioactive that it's like hot and burning. And there's this underground fire going on and there's things leaking out and they're getting into the creeks and people are getting cancer and a lot of people are getting cancer. And they're like, how, how is this connected? Like, how are we getting cancer? And they're trying to figure it out. And eventually somebody like maps it out and they start to see everybody who's getting cancer live next to the Creek, you know? And then they find out, Oh, it was a Creek that was contaminated by the uranium processing. And now the landfill is on fire, and it's exposing us to the dust and exposing us to all these other risks. And why isn't the EPA coming in and doing anything about it? How are we supposed to get something done? So they're fighting all these fights that are potentially going to be the fights of the future of fracking in, in a place like Pennsylvania. I mean, you see this fight in Atomic Homefront just, just, just play itself out and it's frightening to see but it's also really helpful to understand that there's very few studies on the health impacts of low-level radioactive waste but the few things that we're seeing are very scary Mm -hmm. and extremely important to get control of before we lose control of the whole situation
1: yeah absolutely and that is a really great uh example i didn't know about it until you led me to it this case in st louis um but yeah it's so perfect i mean and they 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 had piles of 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 radioactive waste uranium tailings things like that and they and they kind of dragged it around the city and it left a trail and so you know one pile of waste flooded by one spring flood going into one creek and then that creek the next time it floods goes into a basement and it's and it yeah it it worked (laughs) it brought the radioactivity in um and so what, you, you know, you described it perfectly. And even in that case, the um, the US government, I'm forgetting if it was an EPA study or an ATSDR study um, aster part of the CDC, but they came out with a paper that I was just looking at, it was like a year or two ago, maybe earlier this year, they even connected, they determined like, oh yeah, we've looked at the science, we've looked at the numbers, because a bunch of non-government researchers really cracked that case. Uh, the government just recently looked at it, and they determined conclusively that those cancers that that community is experiencing is connected to that radioactivity. Which, again, we're talking about these regulators who like are very hesitant to say anything, and and they made that jump there, you know. So that they, they're even on board with this. I think they know it's because with the science in front of them that's laid out with some really great work by other researchers, they can't just deny it. And so, yeah, tr- fast forward that into fracking. Um, well, it, how, what are they going to do? I mean, we're, we're, starting to crack into it. We're finding the science. We're finding the landfills. We're finding that they're becoming hot.
0: We're seeing the creeks that are being connected to it and how they potentially could be having these kinds of pathways of that radiation and, and carrying that trail. And like, you know, you're, you're just looking at the future just unfolding in front of you. And it's it's the atomic home front for me all over mm-hmm. again. And whether or not it's the same scale, it's the <clears throat> same substances. And people inevitably are going to be in a situation very, very frightening, frighteningly similar to what we saw down there. Well,
1: it's like how much knowledge do you want to have about your world. I mean, do you want to think that the earth is the center of the universe and be really happy about that? Or do you want to think that maybe there's a bigger picture out there? So you mm. could just live in a town and say... We, You know, well, you know, Mary died of cancer and Joe died of cancer, and and that's really sad. And people go and they go and and not try and put the pieces together. Or you can try and put the pieces together, and then you get the information that there are reasons behind why certain people are getting sick in certain places. Um, And I think the way the regulatory system has worked, it has certainly encouraged people, enabled them to ignore what was happening right in front of their eyes but we have some great scientists who are courageous who are willing to still very much following the code of science um, examine start to crack into this and um and then you know you're left with okay do i want to know that there's a specific reason why we're all getting sick or do i still want to kind of live in this world of naivety. And we I think we have a very important decision to make as a society, because once you digest what's happening in the oil and gas industry with the radioactivity that is being brought to the surface in many different ways, spread, dumped, injected, emitted into the air uh, all across the U.S., um, you're you're left with realizing that, like, we have to better understand our natural world and completely alter... How we live and that's coming up in discussions about plastics and other things, materials. Um, and, and that's good to see, you know, th- that is where the conversation has to go. Uh, do you want to just keep breathing in things that are going to kill you or do you want to try and live in a way where you don't have to breathe in things that are going to kill you just to make energy? And we're going to be covering that conversation
0: very closely in 2020. I mean, we're extremely excited to have a chance to, to work with you and your knowledge on this issue and you know all the excellent work that, that you've done and it's been half a decade of us like crossing paths but being able to align on this issue of radioactivity is really exciting and we are going to be talking to the scientists and understanding from them what they're discovering and digging further and further into this story so 2020 at public herald is going to be a big year on this so follow news Q follow us closely because we have a lot more we definitely want to say
1: right absolutely and i'm so excited for this connection joshua i i want to say before we sign off because right so you all have really cracked into the leachate issue um and you've laid it out in your work but to quickly lay it out over the air and then kind of lead to how my work can can expand on that um you produce not just brine Uh, this liquid that is down in the formation with any oil and gas, more brine comes up at a well than oil and gas. Uh, Good estimate is seven barrels of brine to one barrel of oil. So brine is the byproduct. Brine can be quite radioactive, sure. But in fracking, because you're drilling horizontally through the black shale, and again, remember the first part of the talk, black shale, mother load of oil and gas can often be quite radioactive. USGS has known that for 60 years. Marcellus happens to be extraordinarily radioactive. So if you dig up a bunch of dirt out of the Marcellus, out of the black shale, that is the Marcellus, uh, called drill cuttings, that can have quite a high signature. And so these drill cuttings are being brought in trucks to these municipal landfills meant for like diapers and uh, maybe very light industrial waste, certainly not this type of material, and piled up in extraordinary amounts. I mean, we're talking about landfills. You and I have been to some of these communities. Um, People have told me it started out, the landfill started out in the valley. You know, people threw the stuff in a low spot. Now these landfills in some places in a region of hills, southwest Pennsylvania, are the highest geographic feature. In the region. You know, nature doesn't grow that quick. I mean, in ten years, these things have grown to literally mountains. One, which hopefully we'll visit tomorrow, it's called Mount Arden. Arden landfill, the locals called Mount Arden. It's an astonishing sight. I mean, it looks like the the fake ski hill they built at the mall in Saudi Arabia. You know, you can tell humans built it because it's not beautiful. But um, anyway, so these landfills, all these drill cuttings, they have a radioactive The drill cuttings have been analyzed much less than the brine. Uh, So we've got to do a lot of guesswork. I mean, the drill cuttings are going to have uranium because you're taking the rock itself, whereas the brine, it's more radium flows better with water than uranium, although uranium can be soluble and flow with water. Um, But the, the drill cuttings can have the whole mix of the decay chain, all the way from the top to the bottom. No one's really analyzed it well. We're piling them in these mountains rains on a landfill, a lot of liquids still in that material anyway, so you get what's called leachate, this gunky water that settles at the bottom of a landfill, and landfills have intentionally anticipated this, so they have different pipes to take this leachate somewhere. Well, where do they take it? They take it to the sewage treatment plant, and this is what your work has shown. These sewage treatment plants, no ability to clean, A lot of the stuff in the leachate and especially the radioactivity, no ability at a sewage treatment plant to clean out radium and these other radionuclides. So uh, not only is it gunking up the plants, being injected into these rivers, right? So where is it going? How much, where is it settling? How many landfills? These are the things we'll look into, but such an important point. So how can all this happen in the first place? How can you take a truck of drill cuttings or brine loaded with radioactivity, put it on the road, do whatever you want with it. Um, One just extraordinary loophole, and this was another complete mind blow. Hear about the Halliburton loophole, so many exemptions that this industry, the oil and gas industry has created for themselves. The mother of all exemptions is actually under a law um, that was passed in the late 1970s, the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, or what's known as RCRA. Recra is a great idea. It says we're going to produce industrial waste. It's going to some of it's going to be quite hazardous. You know, to be a country, we got to have some uh, industrial waste being produced. But we're going to track it from cradle to grave. We're going to look at all our waste, and we're going to designate the waste that is most worrisome, most dangerous for humans, as uh, we're going to use an official word. Hazardous. The hazardous waste has to go in a certain type of vehicle. Uh, The person who operates that vehicle will then therefore need appropriate training, appropriate equipment to handle the waste. It will even have to travel on roads. You ever driven, you know, under a bridge and there's signs that say, you know, certain type of trucks aren't allowed? Well, those are often trucks with, you know, hazard placards, hazmat trucks. You know, we think very uh, thoroughly about this designation of hazardous materials. Then it will have to be buried, its final destination, the grave, in a certain type of landfill. So, okay, it's a good idea. Take hazardous waste, but it's going to be appropriately disposed of away from humans, you think. Well, guess what industry got a glaring, massive, enormous exemption from this? The oil and gas industry. So all waste, the sludge, the scale, the drill cuttings, the produced water that come up at an oil and gas well are, according to Ricra. They're not hazardous. Now what's so amazing is, and, and horrific really, is the EPA was forced uh, by some lawsuits brought by environmental groups in the early eighties, they were forced to re-examine RCRA and to look at um, this designation and see if it was appropriate. So the EPA does this, it took them a long time. That's why these lawsuits came about. They're taking too long to uh, do this um, re-analysis. And um, Just to wonk out a little bit, this is something that industry often does or regulators do sorry, not regulators, poly, um, legislators do when they're creating a bill that they know is gonna you know, affect industry, they'll leave a loophole and say, well, we're gonna look at it in two years. And that means for those two years, industry can do what it wants. And then by the time the people, the regulators look at it, you know, industry is moving full speed ahead. So by the time the EPA looked at this really dangerous loophole we've just laid out, they actually determined, oh, wow, oil and gas waste, it has uranium, it has arsenic, it has lead, it has barium, it's just loaded with really toxic stuff. It is technically quite hazardous, but if we were to label oil and gas waste hazardous, we would actually uh, potentially shut down this industry. We would have so much waste that we don't even have enough landfills to deal with it, and we don't even have enough regulators to regulate it. This is there in a 1988 EPA document um, that doesn't get nearly enough airtime. And so by EPA's own analysis, To label oil and gas waste as hazardous, as it should be labeled, would crash the industry. We can crash the industry, of course, so therefore we're going to have to call it non-hazardous. Because of that, it can go in a truck that looks like a septic truck with no warning signs on it. One little word that says, brine, or maybe it says water, you know, they could graffiti fiance's name on it, it doesn't matter. You don't need anything. No placards, the driver has no idea they're carrying a dangerous material, a radioactive material, and it goes in a household landfill meant for diapers. And that's it. If you were to change RICRA tomorrow and declare that oil and gas waste, instead of being hazard, uh, non-hazardous, was appropriately declared, labeled hazardous, uh, uh, 6,000 different pieces of the industry would like explode and grind to a halt overnight. And I've asked people that in my reporting what happens if you shut the loophole? It depends who's answering the question. Um, but variations from disaster to um, it's done. It's over.
0: It's just exciting to get a chance to finally... Have conversations about this really really important issue uh, that we hope that you listening the public can carry back you know to your community and to your state representative you know to the federal government and charge of further conversation that we all need to have on radioactivity and in the meantime you know stay tuned to us at Public Herald you know you can follow this podcast subscribe to news That's it's a great place to get the updates on our big reports coming out you can follow us on twitter uh justin noble will be on twitter i don't know what what's your twitter follow
1: i just at justin noble n-o-b-e-l
0: there we go uh you can find me at jb perbanic and the reports are going to be coming soon so keep close attention to what we're doing at public herald Uh, And we'll catch you next time on News So thanks for coming on, Justin. Always good to talk more about this stuff.
1: Thank you, Joshua. So exciting. Thank you. Awesome.